Welcome to my uh, regular live interview series. Uh, some background for those who don't know. Uh, this week, um, about 100 different parkour practitioners were meant to be landing here in Edinburgh in order to attend uh, the European Art of Retreat, which is a conference founded by Caitlin Fontrella, who is with us today. How fantastic is that? Uh, to discuss all things parkour. Unfortunately, due to the global pandemic, um, we can't do that. Um, so instead, I decided, hey, why don't I just try and grab some of these amazing people and interview them about things that they know lots of stuff about. And today is especially exciting for me because uh, we're talking about something which I know very little about, which is art. And uh, so this is a, a slightly different feel to it than maybe some of the others where I've really felt like I can have a discussion. Today, I am very much in learning mode, which is quite exciting for me. Uh, so first of all, let me introduce my uh, lovely guests. Isabel Andrews uh, hails from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she works as a coach with Parker Generations Boston. She jumps on things and she makes art. Her artwork is deeply influenced by her movement practice and in return, the way she thinks about movement has been greatly informed by her study and practice as an artist. She's very interested in the way people connect to their various environments. Caitlin Pontrella is a founding member and current director of the United States Parkour Association, executive director of Parkour Visions and the director of Art of Retreat. Over the past 10 odd years, she's worked in both private and public sector, founding parkour companies, leaderships events, working with city governments to incorporate play initiatives and building over 40 pop-up playgrounds along the way. Whew. She's also an architect and a play researcher, a burner and a prolific writer. I'm not degree in architecture. I'm not an architect, technically not allowed to say that. Sorry, I missed that She's part. not an architect, she has a degree in architecture. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> Isabel, why don't you start? Do you want to give us a bit of a background about your art and motivations? Why do you make art? How do you make art? Um, yeah, sure. So I've always made art. Um, I guess mostly I make stuff based on um, what I'm excited about. Um, so when I was a kid, it was always like um, books that I was reading, characters I was excited about. Um, and in college, I got really excited about parkour. So <laughs> I started, um, I was like painting some people doing parkour, but it, there was like stand blocks that stood up and you could turn them around and like flip them over. Um, and then I was like, okay, well, screw this. I'm just going to make larger sculptures because then I can actually like move around them. Um, and uh, that's what I did. And as to how I make art, um, I guess... I kind of come at it from two sides. So I'll start with an idea on the one hand where I'm like, oh, like I'm excited about this. And like, these are kind of some themes I'm interested in. And then on the other hand, I'm like uh, materials. So certain textures or um, like, I got really excited about steel in college um, because it's bendy and strong. And also it looks really cool when you melt it and weld it. So. <laughs> So I did a lot, I did a lot of stuff with steel. Um, and yeah, and I, fabric also and rope sometimes. Um, so, so you're not really your typical artist sitting down and drawing or painting. You're very much someone who works with different materials and different things and tries to play with the materials they're using. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in quarantine recently, I've been drawing a lot more, let's be real. Um, <laughs> <but> like. <laughs> 
had I access to everything that I would like to have access to, yeah, I'm, I'm someone that likes to sort of play around and work through materials and ideas till I get somewhere I like. Do you kind of think of yourself partially as a builder as well, or is that another side of things? Um, I think it's pretty connected. Um, as a coach, I build SCAF a lot um, with PK Gen. We build a lot of SCAF, guys. Um, and so when I'm designing, um, like I made a, a pretty large steel piece, um, which was meant to be climbed on. And I sort of thought about SCAF when I was building that. Um, and when you're making something that large, there's a lot of like kind of technical stuff that comes into it. Like it has to be structurally sound and like, you know, so you have to think about the trusses and the, you know, you don't have to do all the math, but it's kind of like, um, there's an element. It's not just ooh, ideas. It's very, it gets pretty, pretty, um, engineering at a certain point. Um, and yeah, I've done some woodworking too. So building nice. stuff. Is, yeah, it's useful. <laughs> awesome. So that kind of pivots nicely into Caitlin. Um, I actually, want to take a slightly different direction with you and start with the idea and concept of play because I know that most play researchers don't like defining play but it's going to be it's going to be constant throughout our discussion today so for the purposes of our discussion how can we think about and talk about play in the context of art and in the context of parkour um so uh I think a lot of people in the world of parkour know that there's a large advocacy that for like the association of play and parkour and that parkour is just like play grown up in some ways or play with a little more purpose. Um, and I think especially as, you know, teens and adults hit a certain age, they need some form of, uh, some way that they can interact with their public spaces um, beyond just moving through them um, for utility. Um, and then art is, art obviously can be serious. It can be playful, it can be a number of different things, um, but in the, in the context of parkour, it can serve as a really great medium for, um, uh, I guess, sharing uh, play practices and parkour and inviting people to play, um, inspiring play um, in a way that's really accessible, especially in the realm of public art. Um, obviously, a lot of my personal work and some of the stuff I've done in the past with the Moon Creative was uh, very much on the art installation, play art installation, where people would be able to interact, uh, climb, jump um, on our structures uh, that were put into public spaces. Um, again, using art as a tool to inspire and encourage play and parkour again being sort of- Oh, we have lost Caitlin and she is mid discussion about play. We'll give her a few seconds as she returns. Internet to catch um, up. Okay, so Caitlin, we lost you. You're back. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was still. I could hear you telling me you lost me, and then and then. <laughs> so, okay. You are um, back now. Yeah, so I had you the whole time. I was saying parkour. Um, yeah, you go by. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, totally lost my train of thought. Uh, parkour being something that can be very, like you, the, its philosophy and its practice and its approach to uh, the world, um, obviously works well with interactive art, so. Cool. Um, the audience will note that she did not define play. Getting play researchers to do it is very, very difficult. Um, 
it's a constant issue we have um let's start with a, let's start with a fun silly one which is why do the general public react so ner- negatively to tracers moving and playing in the streets um i'll start yeah okay um yeah so i think there's a lot of um well okay so there's several things going on the first one is that um cities are designed to like funnel people in certain directions you're supposed to walk up the stairs and you know roll down the ramp and walk on the sidewalk and so on so it's all very um directive and people when they're told a set of rules um get very uncomfortable when those rules are broken um and as do as do institutions because we have people like doing stuff that you don't expect them to do that's like a risk factor and um so that's part of it. Um, another thing is that your average person uh, doesn't move very much, um, unfortunately. So if, if it's happened to me where someone sees me playing on stuff and, um, this, and they're like, get down from there, you're gonna hurt yourself. That's a pretty common reaction. Um, and what I think that is, is like they're imagining that they're up there playing, moving, and they're like, if I did that, if I committed to that movement, I would not make it. Therefore, I'm going to tell this person not to do it. Because obviously, if I can't make it, they can make it. Yeah, it's almost um, like a misfiring empathic response. Yeah, it's like those mirror neurons. Um, they're, they're empathizing genuinely with what you're doing, and it's making them really scared. Um, so that's, yeah. What do you think, Caitlin? Yeah, um, so I was going to echo that. I think that you know, historically cities are designed um, with oftentimes utility efficiency in mind as well as safety of its citizens. Um, and in the context of parkour and tracers, uh, I think that stepping back outside of that, uh, street sports in general have always had a lot of resistance um, from general population. Uh, obviously skateboarding is the perfect example uh, especially as the streets became like four cars and the sidewalks four people and the parks for play and even the emergence of the playground, the idea that there is a specific dedicated space for play that we're going to put, you know, behind um, these fences and that's that's the play space which makes everything else the not play space. Um, you know, it's a really important uh, kind of underpinning uh, aspect of people's, uh, I think, perspective on street play. And so especially uh, in modern time, the association of parkour with skateboarding, people call it an extreme sport. Um, They're often presented side by side or related. And there is some value in the relating of them in some ways. Um, There's some subculture shared aspects, but skateboarding has had, though it's improved in time, obviously, uh, a, a really tough history with cities with the destruction of property and vandalism and some other elements like that and that gets conflated with then parkour and its practice even though that's not at all the same skateboard we don't have a piece of equipment that we're grinding and damaging um, city infrastructure with and so I think that um, both general population as you're mentioning safety concerns um, people envisioning themselves as that person doing something and so used to just, this is the space for this thing. And then on the city side um, and policy, it's the fear of um, 
if they permit this type of activity, they're going to have greater damage to public space. Um, they won't respect other people in that space, so they won't be able to coexist. It's really hard to coexist, for example, in a skateboarding space if you're just a normal pedestrian, because skateboarders dominate those spaces. Um, and so there's also like a fear of loss of access by giving access. Um, so I think that all those kind of factors and probably some other things floating in makes a really negative response to parkour. And I think obviously with education um, and the, the, the cities that are have the, some of the best, um, I guess, attitudes towards parkour are those with really great parkour communities that have had uh, conversation, participation uh, and awareness raised about what parkour is inside their cities. So, um, so if I can just take you up a second, Caitlin, just so we can explain things to some people who might not fully get it. One of the things that really shocked me when I uh, went to New York was that separation of space and purpose, because I'd never seen that idea of oh, so this is your play space and this is your dog walking space and this is your walking space. And if you do the wrong thing in the wrong space, you get in trouble uh, because that's like beyond there's a play park with a fence around it. We don't really see that so often. So what is the, so how did, what are the two thought processes behind those two ideas, those shared spaces, that concept of a shared space versus that concept of splitting up and defining each space's use? Uh, so I think that that's more contemporary park design. So uh, over the years, uh, the emergence of the playground was in the early 1900s. And obviously I think it came from Germany, um, but especially in the United States, like in the 80s, 70s, when um, risk and liability sort of became the forefront of a lot of cities' uh, design processes. Um, that's when they started looking at how do you separate these spaces and the, the idea of putting, again, in a, in a modern American park, you're going to get your large green areas that you can sit down, lay out, picnic, um, but you will usually have um, a play area with a play structure. And it's typically, even if it's not fenced off, it's uh, usually there's signage saying, you know, only for kids accompanied with an adult. Uh, and for, and that, that, again, the idea of that's for play and that the other spaces are for other forms of recreation, um, whether it is, like I said, people watching or walking or biking, even those now have their own trails, um, especially like New York, obviously that's like, um, they have like a signature park system as people look to their park system to design their park systems. So um, obviously there's a higher level of attention paid. And again, at such scales of population, I think, a lot of that was in the hopes of helping cooperation in spaces. Um, but obviously, and this is, this is, I've said this before, this is also why I'm anti-parkour park, because I also don't like, again, what happens is that if I give you a space for play, that means you're not supposed to be playing everywhere else. This I give you a space for parkour, you should be doing parkour everywhere else. I give you a space for skateboarding, that's your spot. Why are you here? And it kind of uh, galvanizes, galvanizes, I don't know the right word, uh, but like, uh, makes concrete their belief that like you don't belong here and also by separating those populations then they can't they don't intermix and they don't each group like the skateboarders don't get to talk to the parkour people and you know or the pedestrians and it's a disservice to, i think a disservice to citizens because you know we're removing the opportunity for them to learn how to negotiate with one another i think the rise in intolerant behaviors in public space is because uh, there's so few opportunities to really learn how to negotiate and coexist in public spaces anymore. It's like, well, I'm being told by them that this is what we're supposed to do here, so you're not supposed to be doing that. And now I'm rule keeping and gatekeeping and 
people are incredibly able to negotiate, but. They're substituting that, that kind of, these are the rules for like actual, you know, interaction and negotiation because they never learned that. And so does this explain, of, sorry, if I can yeah. just, you guys are having fun, sorry. <laughs> so does this explain why we can't claim on structures and on sculptures and um, why is it that sculptures are therefore not to be interacted with within that framework you guys are talking about there? Is it that same idea? I know, but we're talking from an American perspective. So I, I just also want to echo because I know we, I remember we had this discussion at the Art of Retreat last year that uh, I realized that obviously the American perspective is unique because of its liability. I don't think you guys have said anything that doesn't ring true in Europe as well yet. Okay, I'll cool. definitely pop in if it does. Okay, cool. Yeah, we do have a little bit more of here. I think the like what Caitlin just mentioned, um, like liability. So if I'm playing on like somebody's wall, then they might be like, "Well, if you get hurt, you'll sue me," um, which you know I wouldn't because it's my responsibility what I do with my body. But um, yeah, with sculptures, I think there's also an added thing of like art is this sort of intellectually sacred like thing. Um, so mm -hmm. a lot of times, and a lot of, a lot of sculpture is like not that sturdy also. A lot of stuff is not designed to be touched, which is fine. And like, if it's gonna fall over, if you touch it, like obviously don't touch it. But stuff like, um, for example, at uh, the school I went to when I was a sophomore, they installed this 20 foot steel teddy bear. Um, <laughs> yes. And, <laughs> So immediately, immediately there's signs up like, please don't climb on Bluno. And um, of course, immediately people were climbing on Bluno because it's sturdy, it's interesting to look at and you're not supposed to climb on it. Um, but like, I guess, yeah, the, the idea of like, don't touch the art is like, you're gonna, you know, Either you're, you know, violating the artist's like intellectual creation, or you're, you know, damaging it, or you're making it dirty. Um, and these are things that are generally considered not acceptable for um, art pieces, even if they're like placed outside with like minimal fencing, um, and they're clearly very sturdy. Yeah, actually, I think you uh, hit on it really well, saying that art is art is perceived as sacred. Um, I think that if you look at, especially how American society has gone about um, enshrining art in museums, these kind of like uh, incredible mansions and palaces that are like for art. And you go there and there's obviously very strict, like don't touch the art, don't play. And, um, you know, even in public spaces, I remember the first time I encountered public art being like, can I touch this? Like, am I allowed to touch this? And then you, know, you still see people moving around out, no outdoor public art, which is generally designed to be sturdy. Um, with again, that the same reference they bring to a museum because that's also, museums are usually the only places most people interact with real art. And I put real art because that's what people think of as real art, right? Um, but that's like the primary spaces which people typically interact, that are gallery spaces, right? And all these spaces are very hands-off. So having these other kind of interactive hands-on, you really require like an invitation to play. Yeah. Um, Peter, Peter Kageyama, he's an author, I've mentioned this book almost every time I've been on an interview, but he writes this book called um, Love Where You Live, and he talks a lot about the need for 
invitations to play um, because people are so, uh, have been so conditioned to not interact and to not engage and to pass through and not like be inside of a space. Um, and he gives some wonderful examples of ways artists and cities have invited play into their spaces through the use of design and installation and art and architecture and whatever else, so. I mean, and there's also a little bit of controversy because outdoor sculpture is usually designed to be sturdy because they know that people are going to try and climb it and they're, it's gonna take some crap. Like, so it has to, it has to be ready for that. And they're also gonna put signs around it telling you not to. Yeah. Yeah, there, and that's, that's, I think, a fear of liability. And I think liability around a lot of things is not really well understood. Um, yeah. Like in the history of parkour in the United States, there's not been a single uh, case and no like lit litigation of any person getting hurt doing parkour against a public space or a private company. So whenever someone brings up like, what about the liability when designing our park? I'm like, there's no, like we've been around for 20 years and this has never been a thing for anyone ever. So it's sort of a perceived liability, um, but it's so rare that it actually comes to becoming anything. Um, and even in court, I think would end up failing due to personal responsibility, obviously. Mm. But It's a really interesting theme you kind of pull out there, which is that idea of uh, that perceived liability and the perceived rules associated with art. Um, compared to that very subversive idea that Isabel kind of brought up, which is the reason someone wants to claim on it is because someone wrote, don't claim on it. So how does that subversive idea play into this world of art in the real world? Um, do you think that there's something subversive about interacting with public spaces, or do you think there's something that feels fundamentally right about it? Which way would you interpret those ideas? I think... I mean, first I want to say like about art, a lot of art hilariously is made kind of with an idea of being a little bit subversive of like asking a question about society. Um, like uh, Banksy is a very obvious example of this where he's like going and putting little murals in places he's not supposed to put them. Um, but uh, yeah, um, so your question was, uh, what is subversive about like playing is playing in a city subversive or playing on art subversive or is it like the right thing to do yes yeah um i mean i think some of both like when you're playing in a space that's like especially here like designated as not a play space um it's very it's like a clear like i'm violating the implicit rules of the space. Um, and like, as a practitioner, like when I'm training outside, like I'm always a little bit of aware of that. And there's both of like, okay, this is a really interesting space. And um, I really like um, kind of challenging those rules because um, I want to like, like it, it feels yeah, because it, it feels like the right thing to do. Like everybody so is that is that process where you are going out and moving in the space in some ways artistic as well? Is that the Yes, I would say that it is. Um, because um, in the same way that an artist might be like, I'm gonna ask a question by making this weird piece and asking people to interpret it. Um, 
parkour people go out and they, you know, go and train on these spaces. But when they're doing that, it's like, well, you know, should people be allowed to do that? Like, you know, we're really movement deprived and you have to like wear special clothes or go to a gym to exercise. Um, but you can just go jump on stuff. Like, <laughs> it is weird that people feel they need to go to a, I mean, I, I kind of get it. And within the framework of a coach, I, I do encourage it to some extent. But that idea of to go to a parkour gym to do parkour does feel really odd to me because it feels like part of what we do is interact with public spaces. And when you take that away, I and I don't want to get into that what is and isn't parkour discussion so much, but I think it does speak interestingly that you can sort of reflect within art that idea of well, if you move it into a dedicated space, there's something less artistic about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it just changes like indoor in an indoor space, like on the one hand, somebody's really thought about designing that space. So there's the art of the design of the space, but the 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 conceptual piece of like, I'm pushing back and I'm trying to, I'm sort of making a statement about like what's okay in public space is no longer there um, when you go inside. And like the movements might be the same that you're doing and like the artistry and the beauty of um, what you're doing might be the same, but um, it's, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not quite the same. Yeah. And I think, so to jump in, um, so I was making notes as you were talking. Um, so I think parkour and by extension play um, can be fairly, can be very sub, sub, subversive practices. I was about to say submissive practices, subversive practices. Um, they're really good. Yeah, they're really good at, um, it's really good at interrupting like socialized behaviors and patterns of movement and thinking. And so that's sort of where I see the subversiveness of parkour is that I go into public space and why, and also why gyms and parks don't necessarily, parkour parks don't resonate with me. It's that parkour is a tool to um, it, uh, interrupt the ways we're already thinking to create new ways of thinking. Um, new ways of moving. Um, obviously, the human brain thrives thrives off of uh, complexity and change. Um, and also, parkour is a tool to, I guess, reexert uh, individual uh, individual ownership um, over a space or a place. And play can be this too. Obviously, um, cities is definitely. That, hmm? Is that reclamationism? That concept. I don't. I don't know. I'm not really familiar with that word particularly. Um, um, I think it's a branch of art where the idea is to uh, it's a performance art where they kind of go and they try and reclaim a space that has been used for something else. Cool. An intervention, a space intervention. Yeah, um, yeah, cool. Totally in alignment. But yeah, so parkour being subversive because not only can it interrupt, interrupt behaviors and patterns that are already existing, but it also um, can help people re-exert a sense of ownership um, in the places they live, cities are can be cities are incredibly oppressive in many ways. Like you were saying earlier, Isabel, um, it tells you how to use things, where to go, how to move. This place is for cars. This place is for this. Um, and oftentimes, and always, there are populations being left out of the design of cities. Um, you know, there's a big discussion today about how uh, low-income families, uh, people of color, uh, immigrant communities. Uh, the LGBT community, all these sort of um, marginalized populations have been left out of uh, the design of city spaces and city policies. And so, and even teens, think about age groups, teens and seniors, populations that are not being taken, uh, people with disabilities, people are not being taken into consideration the design of these spaces. And um, this is a tool 
parkour can be, and play by extension, obviously, can be a tool for people to reclaim the place they live and feel that they actually belong. I think that that's really why it resonated so much and grew out of, same with Skate Party, grew out of um, the teen population at first, because teens are incredibly un, un, under-resourced by cities. You know, playgrounds in, 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 in the States, um, playgrounds are a great example of this because, uh, you, know, you know, the emergence of the playground, all these signs go up and in, in New York City, you see, I have some photos of it. Uh, signs say, you know, if you are uh, over the age of 12, basically you're not allowed on this playground. Um, so what happens? You know, what happens to the population between 13 and 18 before they have money to join a gym or a space or whatever? Their schools, most schools, like over 50% of the schools don't have gym spaces. There's limited access to fields and team sports, and those are expensive if you do want to participate in them. So where do these, pop where does this population go to play? And so of course they're on streets, and what's that word? Um, uh, when you're just hanging around, it begins to an S. Loitering. Loitering, oh yeah, so loitering. And there's another word for it too, but um, there's a movement, I think it, maybe it's in Canada, that'd be, that'd be very fitting, but um, it's called Yes Loitering. And the idea that like, yes, people should be able to be in their public spaces. Yes, they should be able to like, like that, that is where we live. And so, especially in cities where there's not other spaces provided for youth play or teen play, that's where parkour stepped in. And um, there's two books I was gonna recommend uh, people are interested in this. The first one is uh, Skateboarding Space in the City. Um, it's by someone, Jane Bo uh, Ian Borden. I'll, I'll give you a list of all the books afterwards. We can post them. Um, this was actually recommended to me by Julie uh, Angel, and it was an amazing read. Basically, just for a lot of these, you just replace the word parkour, and then it's just an awesome exploration about skateboarding in the city and perspective on that. And um, I think people get a lot of insight there. And then the other book is called The Accidental Playground. Um, this is on the Brooklyn Waterfront uh, Park and how before it was kind of reclaimed by the city. Uh, people living in Brooklyn and around artists and other populations um, came in and made uh, this space their own, like local residents, activists, garbage haulers. Um, they sort of turned this unused space. It was just like leftover space that no one was taking care of beneath the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, reclaimed it for their play spaces and you had fire spinners down there and you had art being built and people playing chess and all sorts of different things happening. Um, but you know, it was a really great, you know, it's gone now, it was a really great, I think, treatise on how public spaces can be safe and created by the public. Um, you know, all of our public spaces today are created by someone in government or some architect, which I have no opinions on, but sitting behind a desk with their one perspective, instead of giving people a space and seeing what they create, which is a radical idea, believe it or not. But um, that's what parkour does. It's like, hey, we're gonna take this space and we're gonna create what we need in it because, you know, that's, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think like there was one, like I've heard stories, okay, actually. So the Navy Yard in Boston um, used to like, before we were training on it um, was not, this is, like not firsthand, I wasn't training in the Navy Yard like way back in the day, um, but used to be a lot oh, more gee. rough. <laughs> oh gee, yeah. Um, used to be a, a lot rougher and like having parkour people there like playing and having a good time um, really does like re-enliven the space and make it like a place of joy and a place that, 
you know, we love. And like, also like, I've trained in a lot of like really weird, like not very aesthetic, you know, kind of random like alley kind of spots. Um, and like, normally I would never, like if I weren't a parkour practitioner, I would never go there. But as a parkour mm-hmm. practitioner, I go there and I develop a connection with the space and I love that space. Um, and I think that's really important, like as a city dweller, like I don't just have like these beautiful trees and forests to like look at and, you know, enjoy that way. Um, so having this kind of like, um, I love this space because I did these movements and had these wonderful memories with my friends. Um, and yeah, like Caitlin was saying, like, um, take, yeah, like we don't get to determine our own spaces in cities. It's always determined for us. So having that freedom, that responsibility, um, that creativity is really powerful. Yeah. And I also think that, um, what you brought up there too, is like finding spaces that are, that have lost love by their city or are unloved by their city and, um, giving new life to them is something that parkour can uniquely do. I mean, obviously art can do it. And there's lots of people who engage in different ways of, um, making more of less. But um, I think parkour has a really, like, could really lead in a, in a unique way, the reclaiming of these spaces for the larger community. So I look at Vauxhall as a really good example of sort of like I was a thinking about Vauxhall. Yeah, I, I kind of think it's kind of a missed opportunity. And I feel that the, and I, I, I've never actually, I don't know what part of the community exactly was caretaking that space, or if it was just sort of people passing through, it was, one of many spaces, um, but parkour being could have been the primary driver of bringing in other places of the community. So even when designing a space, and another reason I'm not pro parkour park all the time is because um, I don't think single use spaces are going to have longevity in our ever growing urban population that you need to be thinking about multi-use. And so if you can design something for multiple communities to be able to engage with um, and coexist at the same time, those are gonna be the most successful, well-funded and taken care of. And Vauxhall, you know, parkour can reclaim that space and say, hey, this does have value, but then they could have gone a step farther and started inviting artists in to do some painting, looking at other community groups to help activate it. Because again, if you only see one group of people using it and it's a transient group, um, it doesn't seem like that space actually is cared for by the community or a community. And I think that's also part of it too, is that if a, if a, if a community is going to claim a space and needs to actually take ownership of it um, and bring it back to the community, so. I yeah. really want to get into talking about multi-use spaces. It's definitely going to be my next question. But before we get there, I do want to just take a moment because I find that really interesting because you guys, the way you're describing spaces and purpose, multi-purpose spaces, it got me mostly thinking about London spots, but it's reflected in most of the UK city spots that I know of, which is, and you guys might be able to speak to this better than me, is a lot of them are dead ends. The places that we found are normally um, interesting architecturally for some reason or the other, but they are not where people are walking regularly. Um, Normally because they are, for some reason or the other, inefficient. Like, they are not leading anywhere. Vauxhall is a great example. Um, Vauxhall didn't go anywhere, and its main use was parkour practice and drug use. So people went there when they didn't want to be seen, um and then elephant castle is another very similar story in london um bristol square in edinburgh is another great example i mean i'm sure everyone can sit here and go 
yeah, the space I went to is a place where no one bothered me. I could jump around and no one could stop me. Um, so is it the, are we looking for these inefficiencies? Is that part of what we're looking for? These things which are odd that we can play with? Um, or are we just moving to places where no one's bothering us? Like, okay, you can go. Okay. Um, I mean, I think it's some of both because it is easier to train um, when you're in a space that, you know, isn't very high traffic and you don't have to like stop and let the people go by all the time. Um, but also spaces where um, it's not a pass through um, are kind of by nature inefficient because it's not like, um, yeah. So like, for example, in Harvard Square, there's an alleyway and then off to the side of the alleyway, there's a really random courtyard and it's a great training spot because it, has all these like weird little walls and things um, that like have no particular purpose. They're just there. And, um, but at the same time, like we also use space that does have a purpose. Um, so like um, an island in, or like a, what am I trying to say? Like a, a public area where people will like sit and hang out and there's like benches and tables and like little walls and things um, like that is a useful space um, and it is high traffic, but like I'll train in spaces like that because it's a good spot. Um, and like in that case, like the risk of being seen or like called out or moved on, like doesn't matter that much because, you know, you just move on. Um, and the experience you have there, like the training you get is worth it. Does that sort of answer it? Yeah, and to, to jump into, um, I think obviously many par par parkour practitioners do like finding spaces where they can be somewhat isolated and left alone, mostly because they've probably experienced some level of harassment at some point or another to get out. And the exhaustion, there is like an emotional exhaustion of having to constantly negotiate with the public for your play. Um, but at the end of the day, um, if you find one of these spaces that are underutilized, um, if you don't, like, I feel like it's kind of our responsibility to bring those spaces back to the public. You obviously can just try to keep it your secret. Like, you know, don't, don't try to reintegrate that space into public usage. And then it will get torn down because cities don't have any investment or understanding of why it's valuable. Um, and also does no benefit to parkour in general if we keep these spaces quietly to ourselves. Um, so I think like if you want to see like these kinds of leftover spaces that we're finding, preserved in some sort of meaningful way, um, finding ways to invite other communities to participate in those spaces, getting creative and acting sort of like a uh, an activist to some extent uh, or a community connector um, to bring other people and bring awareness of this space and its value. Um, yes, does that mean you're probably gonna have to interact with people who aren't doing parkour more and you're probably gonna have to re-engage in negotiating the usage of these public spaces? Absolutely. But again, the more population, more the population that you can have participating, the more communities that you have participating in a space, the more likely it will be invested in, preserved, um, improved. Um, so I, while I can appreciate why people seek out these sort of like pocket leftover places and spaces, um, cities know, like cities know where those spaces are. They're probably in some master plan somewhere, even if it's 20 years out to eventually be upgraded. And like Vauxhall is definitely not like, 
oh, I discovered this space in our city. No, like they knew they built it. They've known it's been there since it's been built and they probably had plans for rebuilding it for years. Things take forever in the government. So it wasn't like a year long. It probably, they probably had decisions 10 years back to get rid of that structure or that space. And then time came. So realizing that like no space, there are very few spaces that are forgotten by the city once they're there. Again, even, even spaces that are not developed, you know, the, you know, say in the, the Brooklyn waterfront, not developed forever up until when it was, um, people know. I mean, the city knows they're tracking it. They're trying to improve this. They're trying to improve their citizens' experience and they're doing what they think is best for their citizens. Um, that's why I was saying like, if you find somewhere you do really love and care for, you need to find, you need to invite more people to come play and you have to like take a leadership role in that, that effort to do so. Right. And so I think, is, yeah. I was just going to, speaking of what you were saying, Caitlin, of like needing to invite people to our spaces and like bring, you know, a community engagement. Like, I think that's something that uh, might be pretty hard for a lot of parkour people. Um, like, again, because like, we like having the space to train because it means we don't get bothered. Um, so we're kind of asking to be bothered in order to like create that connection. I mean, and it doesn't have to be even like, I think getting go back to Vauxhall and some other places I've played before, like even if you don't told the gung-ho on reaching out to other places just yet, other, other groups and communities, you can also even ask local government, hey, can we put a fresh coat of paint here? Um, or can we run an event here? Like, yeah, so the if you can show that there's at least show to local government that there's at least a community interested and invested in taking care of that space, which is the important part. It's not that I just use it because I'll use any space, but I'm invested in this particular space for a reason. Um, it's going to very much change, I think, uh, a city's perspective over time, right? One and of the also, um, like, oh, like you know, these people aren't just a bunch of hooligans, like, they care about the city and they want to, you know make it better mm -hmm. exactly i'm really interested separating that that skateboarder parkour or homelessness parkour whatever it is parkour association of you know we really want to take care of this space because this is our play tool it's not it's not like something we're just passing through this is the foundation of our practice i'm really interested in drilling down there a little bit what, what's, what does that look like practically to invite someone into the space or to show the local government that you're investing in the space? How do you, and is it, there's sort of an up and down thing there. Are we talking about going to local government? Are we talking about going to the local community? Like, can you give me just some options as where you would go with that? Sure, I think there's a lot of options and approaches. Uh, like I said, the first one I already said is that you yourself with your community, the Park Park community can offer to caretake that space in some way. So that's like offering to paint a mural or like um, replace something that you need needs fixing, but making the city aware that you wanna do something to take care of the space or run a, leave, um, what's it called? A leave no trace event, um, but find a way to communicate that to city partners or other community groups that might caretake that space um, because that will help raise awareness that, hey, th this space exists and is being taken care of. Um, so those are really simple things on like, a, I don't need to talk to any other group aside from maybe some like localized outreach, but you know, you can probably find a local newspaper that'll print something about it or a blog or a community group. Like there's tons of groups on Facebook in America, especially that like neighborhood groups that you can reach out to that you're doing this thing to take care of the thing. And like what we did here in um, 
Seattle, we did a, a Leave No Trace event where we partnered up with a local company and their employees came out and we did a Leave No Trace for 30 minutes and then a parkour lesson afterwards. So it was both an opportunity to clean up the space and then educate people on a creative way to use it, which I think at scale could work really well if you have a good city partner or a good nonprofit mm. partner who can catalyze their community, a good environmental, there's tons of environmental justice, environmental um, stewardship organizations. They're great to partner with for these kinds of things, but this is where community leadership is really important. Someone who's willing to step up and engage in that level of communication. Um, but yeah, so that, that's the first level. And then the, the other way I go about it is, you know, again, through that leadership role is, is doing outreach to connect with other local culture and art groups. Um, most cities and towns have festivals and um, events and activities and getting your community involved in some way, whether you bring a pop-up playground or you offer to teach like a little class a part of that, or you have a booth, raising awareness of that you exist, and then you connect with other groups, and then in time, bring them to your space. Um, but yeah, there's mural art, there's art groups that would probably be interested in doing mural art, um, but those are sort of like my first immediate thinking, but either way for parkour communities, leave no trace events are super easy, low hanging fruit um, to begin with. For especially sure. in the States. I, again, I don't know how your Europe communication works in some yeah, countries. Yeah, I was but... gonna speak to that. I think, um, so for you, it seems to be that there's local government and it's a place to go. For us, it would probably be uh, local councils and it's probably someone working in parks and green space. Um, there's a great charity here in the UK who are doing this career called Plastic Patrol that people might be interested in finding cool. out more. Uh, and it's really, I think you're absolutely right. I think figuring out who locally has a voice in these matters and that becomes about doing your own research, which we can really talk to. But if I could take all that and finish off, because that was a fantastic discussion, guys. Thank you so much. And just move us for the last 20 minutes or so um, about this idea of multi-use spaces. Because I think that um, you both speak to it really passionately, this idea of taking, uh, putting art in public spaces that can be used is kind of where Isabel wants to go. And Caitlin really wants, to, loves talking about these multi-use spaces. Can you guys just give me a rundown of what exactly that might practically look like, what this concept could look like if we actually implemented this lovely dream? Well, I just will start by saying they already exist. I mean, most Sweet. of like many, most of parkour spaces are already multi-use spaces. Um, here in Seattle, there's um, Freeway Park is the big iconic one, but that's like a public fountain. Um, Lawrence Halperin awesome. is an architect that if you're interested in architects who do amazing work, he was actually inspired by movement. His wife was a ballerina and all of his spaces were designed to inspire movement and there are these beautiful fountains. Um, but those are multi-use spaces where they're meant for people. They're meant to have concerts there. Uh, people can just hang out and pass through the park. There's benches and open uh, seating and picnicking areas. Um, you can bring a bike. You can bring a skateboard. It's highly tolerant to skateboarding. Um, so those spaces are great. They have, they have varying levels of success in different cities, but they all have parkour communities, which is really interesting. I think that's where some of the first parkour communities all popped up around Lawrence Halford Fountains. Um, but, you know, Paul Friedberg, Jacob Reese, they all have, not Jacob Reese, I'm sorry, is it, Jacob Reese Parks is a park by uh, Paul Friedberg. Um, Paul Friedberg is um, another architect who has great parkour friendly spaces that are public parks and spaces, um, both American architects, I believe. Um, so they exist everywhere and most of us already can have, have uh, spaces like these, but those two are, are really highlight designers to me because 
they thought beyond, they like think about public events, daily public use, and then uh, play and movement as an integral part of that space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, having spaces that are specifically designed that way. Um, but I think also in addition to that, um, in order to make a space a multi-use space, um, you have to kind of communicate that that's the case because like um, freeway park, like a parkour person will go there and be like, oh my God, it's amazing. Like immediately right away. Um, but like a regular person, like you might have to put a sign up that's like, hey, like try walking on the concrete over here. Um, or even like, you know, doing stuff like, um, I mean, this is why I'm interested in having like art and aesthetics and spaces like these is because um, having something pretty to look at um, and to touch and interact with that way and being like, hey, come experience this art piece. You can touch it, you can walk on it. Um, is like, people get really excited about it because they're like, oh, now I have permission to use this thing that I, you know, it's sort of like, I never get to touch art and I never get to, you know, so it starts, um, yeah, like just having an invitation and permission. Um, can for you? Can you give me a quick definition of what, how you see aesthetics and how aesthetics, uh, what it kind of means and what it might bring to the design of a space? So that's a tricky one um, <laughs> because it's like specific, like aesthetic, you know, design um, does vary by culture. Um, but I think um, there's a few factors that are like kind of constant. And one of them is um, the space like has indications that somebody has like spent time on it and like cared about it and like um, wanted it to um, like look pretty, whatever that meant to them. Um, another thing is like, we humans, um, we like to look at natural forms um, because that's where we evolved. Um, so there's a thing where so a tree has like a specific density of fractals. Um, and so you'll see uh, in, in like replicating that approximate density of fractals creates like a nicer aesthetic experience than, um, than other kinds of densities of fractals. Um, so, um, but that that's more like on the science side of things. Um, that's why I like it so much the concept, that's really cool. <laughs> Yeah, it's a fun one um, because it's like, yeah, like we like looking at that stuff. Um, so um, even, good, oh, good, sorry. Like you can, you can create kind of biomimicry even with like rectangular prisms because you can create that kind of fractal structure density. Like Freeway Park, again, for example, um, made of rectangular prisms, but it looks really beautiful because those prisms create this sort of like quasi natural space where you have like a waterfall and you have these different levels and there's like small blocks and big blocks um, and like textured surfaces. Um, so having these kind of like details um, and like, yeah, with, yeah, with like inviting people with aesthetics, then we start thinking about like color because you want something that like attracts the eye so like people are um hardwired to like notice red for example um because like ripe fruit is red um but yeah like that's roughly what i think about aesthetics 
And I think a, a good example of kind of what you're talking about is, um, I was looking at a poster you were talking, I was like, what is the name of this park again? It's, I'm gonna, I'm sorry if I butchered this name. It's Maranuma Park um, in Japan, I believe. And it's by an architect slash art sculptureist. Um, uh, it's Noguchi, his last name is Noguchi, uh, really famous sculptural artist um, and slash architect. And he, like, if you type in Google, Morenum, M-O-E, M-O-E-R-E-N-U-M-A Park, uh, and Noguchi, N-O-G-U-C-H-I um, Playground. Scroll down, you'll eventually hit the pictures that will show really bright, colorful. Yeah. yeah is this so this maze is, I love Noguchi. Huh? With the, the colorful walls, the maze. I yeah, trained there. Those. I've been there. It's amazing. And yeah. also, there's a there's a play park right next to it for kids where they can, like, chuck nails at things and like um, <laughs> climb on tall platforms and stuff. It's a an adventure playground. Cool. And there's yeah, just- Yeah, so like one the, Noguchi, the Noguchi playground, I think it's a really good example of the intersection of art and play and public space um, because there's some great photos too. If you explore some of the photography as well, you'll get people sitting, kids playing, um, but it's, it's, it's yes, a playground when you look at it, but it's also an art space. And so, and it's surrounded by a long bench. So people are there spectating, participating. Um, and so it really does fulfill this criteria of play, public space, art, um, and multi-use. Um, and I love, again, I love the idea of play structures being sculptures that are worth viewing. Um, I think spectatorship is a really important part of like participating in public space and thinking about what are people spectating in these public spaces. Um, obviously parkour being something that you watch as well, parkour is very performative and can be a really rich addition to any public space, um, but people have to understand its presence there. But, but yeah, so I thought that that was a really good example. And um, another architect uh, worth looking at is Alda van Eyck. He uh, did a lot of sculptural programs. I think he was primarily in Amsterdam. He's European. Um, he did like 17 or 18 of them, I don't know, or way more, way more than that, but there's like 17 or 18 feature. I have a book on it somewhere. But um, also another person using uh, sculptural objects as, for play spaces that um, inspire movement. Um, yeah. And another, I just I, to hop away from that for a second, somebody said earlier too, um, before, before we finished is another issue with parkour parks that I have found with the isolating of just parkour park design is that they tend to use concrete forms and pipe and it ends up looking like um, a construction space, like an unfinished construction space. And um, it's not something that people naturally know how to interact with or not socialized, like we're not socialized yet to interact with. Um, and so I also know that people have seen parkour parks and been like, is this under construction? Can I even like use this? I'm gonna rush by it. like. They actually don't even find it aesthetically appealing most of the time. Those concrete, the kind of like more brutalist um, concrete structures. I think that using wood, brick, and other kind of natural materials is better because people kind of identify better with that. But the raw concrete exposed pipe just leaves this impression that, again, this is also potentially not even a space that's cared for, even if it's brand new. So, right. Well, and that's a space that has been designed like. Again, that's like segregating, like, this is our space. Like, we know how to see movement here, you don't. Um, yeah. But I had one more thing, which was like, while we're on the topic of architects, it's worth mentioning that um, 
Pierre Zichelli designed the Dame de Lac to be a movement space, um, which I just think is so cool because that that was like, you know, in the 60s. <laughs> like, there used to be ropes hanging from it. Yeah, no, he, he had this whole idea of like, you know, the the um, the people interacting with the space were like completing the sculpture. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, he wrote like a really beautiful article about it, um, which is worth checking out. The 60s and 70s in the world of architecture and that kind of like scale of work, and that's Jake um, Halperin and uh, Friedberg were also in that era. Um, There's a lot, and that was also like an era in which you saw the construction of tons of these sort of like concrete sculptural playgrounds, some of them, which are still existent today, but many got torn down later on. But there was definitely very much this interest in movement and public space and people reclaiming their cities. I mean, to think about um, Jane Jacobs and her big push to save the Lower West Side in New York City and the idea that cities should be for people and not cars because the whole modernist movement in mid-century movement was all about cities need to be for cars and we're gonna make these huge um, streets and boulevards and they're gonna be the definers of how we design our city. Um, in the 60s and 70s were sort of a, a push back against them that city should be for people at the people scale and for the people and by the people. And um, I think parkour, if it had been there would have just like, and that's how skateboarding too, but like would have just thrived in that time in that era. And I think Halpern, if he was alive now would just be so fucking into parkour. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I just cursed, I didn't mean to do that. It's okay, this wasn't meant to be a PG podcast. Um, <laughs> it kind of, it leads into a really interesting final discussion. I'd love both of your opinions on this, this piece which is that, um, and I think it really speaks to that idea of in the 60s and 70s, we had a different outlook in the world in general. We had a different idea of what the self was. We're now in this very neoliberal phase of society where we think about the bottom dollar a lot more. And I'd be really interested in hearing both your thoughts about how we incorporate these ideas of design and art and aesthetics and spaces for people into a world that fundamentally cares about efficiency and the bottom dollar and um, all these other quite like economic ideas how do we how do we win that argument in a way that will add value to the rest of our lives I think um, it's actually fairly simple because um, having these spaces brings people to the city they want to go there and then they'll like spend money at the shops and like tourists will come and check it out and like um, you know so it, it, it boosts the morale and, you know, it makes people happier too. And like happy people, you know, spend less more. money. So, well, <laughs> that too. Yeah. <laughs> but it, I mean, you know, there's, there's, yeah, like it does, it does bring people to a space regardless of whether they're, you know, happy and spending less money. It's like, it, it raises the value of a space to have it be, nice and worth using yeah and um to tag on to that uh speaking to like economic value um like the movement market is one of the like largest growing arenas of sport participation individualized sports that like are not team-based that can be outdoors are like exploding in popularity and a lot of different studies kind of showed this um i wrote an article on this that i'll also share with you about the general movement market but um there's a lot of value in providing these types of spaces and that attract and bring in uh, play and movement, sculpture, aesthetically, whatever it is. Um, and as you're saying, the more the more groups that you have um, 
utilizing the space, the more likely it's going to be taken care of, it's going to be activated, um, adding long-term value to a community beyond its perhaps original intended lifespan. Um, so I think there's a lot of a lot of opportunity. And, and I also think that a lot of these sort of like multi-use spaces, um, if they're again aesthetically pleasing, um, people will get creative, as long as they're allowed to, people get creative and find new ways to keep using it and reusing it over time. So if the city is smart in the design of its space, that space will create value on its own over time. It won't, it like, the city will have to do less caretaking of it and less programming and activating of it because the, the communities themselves will want to be using that space. That's a really good point. People will organize their own events there, like. Yeah, which creates yeah, turnover and turnovers are really, yeah, okay. Cool, guys, um, I'm gonna finish the main discussion there because we have gone over an hour now. Um, thank you so much, both of you. I, I know you can keep talking forever, but I'm trying to keep these, and I, we've, we've still got about a few minutes to do because you're gonna to wanna to talk about boots now. Uh, the last thing I kind of ask uh, all of my guests um, is um, if people are interested in this topic and they wanna learn more, uh, about art and cities and sculptures and all these things. Um, what are the authors, podcasts, papers, places that you really feel they should go in order to start learning about these things? And obviously, I'm going to have Isabel go first because uh, Caitlin will talk a lot about books. I'll just give you a list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I think in this in this particular of like here's a bunch of things to read. Um, Caitlin probably has more things on the list, um, but you can like every, like basically to learn more about this kind of thing, go walk around your city, like look for the public art. There is public art. You can look up where the public art is in your city. You can find it. Um, you can look up who designed the parks. Um, there's usually a lot of, like, for example, even like Frederick Law Olmsted, who's like the famous American park designer, like there's a lot of kind of interesting thought going on in there. Um, and so just like start with your own space, like find out who made stuff, why they made it. Um, and then like you can also like there's often um, initiatives in cities of like designing new parks and you can go to the council meeting and be like, hey, I think we should put parkour in our park like we did that here in Boston PKGen did we you know advocated for a parkour park as and they were redesigning a park and we were like let's put this in here and they did um so um yeah I'm imagining Evan in a tie it's a good look I think it was mostly Blake um and Brandon <laughs> <laughs> let's be yeah real. but that that's more to be expected though so it's yeah. less of a yeah. All right. but, um, um, any podcast, anything you want to highlight, anything you just think is fantastic and people should listen to, watch, read? Um, listening, watching, reading. Um, I do recommend going and reading um, Pierre Zekeli's article about the Dom de Lac because I love it. <laughs> and think us, uh, I want to read it. Yeah, um, I will. I will send you the link. Um, the other thing that you can look up, um, there's a lot of, there's, so, okay, um, what am I trying to say? You can read about like mapping. 
I, well, okay, so the articles are not being, coming to mind, um, but there's a lot of people who are doing work on mapping cities um, non-traditionally. So through like smells, sounds, mm -hmm. like public spaces, walking paths. Um, so if you look up like, I don't know, like city mapping, non, and actually I have a couple of websites that I can link you. Um, I don't remember the names off the top of my head, um, but those are super, super no um, I think we're going to drop a whole bunch of uh, links and comments in the comments to this video because you guys clearly have a lot you want to share about these issues. So yeah. once this finishes off, a lot of your things will just go into the comments of this video. Yeah, perfect. Um, and I guess the last thing I would say is like, um, I did some reading at one point about like um, early like 19th, well, like late 19th, early 20th century and even like early 19th century thinking about public space. Um, and there's like, there was a whole movement um, like the situationists where they were really interested in like, um, uh, like spectacle and like looking like, you know, stuff. So there was a whole movement of like being walking in the city and like experiencing it basically um so i'll i'll link some stuff to that it was a while ago that i that i was reading about this but um it's interesting <laughs> cool caitlin tell us about books okay well i'll actually give you a list of books um so the first two things i'm gonna do like shameless self-plug but uh one is i am in june i'm launching june 1st two websites are going up one is the parkour um history and heritage website. And so specifically I'm looking, well, eventually I'll probably add the history element, looking to document um, information on uh, parkour training spots and sort of like getting their his, uh, heritage documentation. Um, there are, I think three or four sites around the world that have gained heritage status for skateboarding. Um, and I think because uh, public spaces are so integrally tied to our practice that we can start making cases for heritage protection for a lot of parkour sites, but it just takes a lot of work and uh, documentation. So beginning that process. And um, second is uh, Gorilla Play. And that's going to be a blog in which I have like 70 or 80 books on play design and public space. Um, but Gorilla Play will be a blog kind of documenting playgrounds, play spaces, books, resources, all on this subject of um, play, public space, design, art, and parkour, um, which has been sort of the backbone of a lot of my research over the last five years. So it's finally sort of taken some time, but now I've had a lot of content lined up and that's what I've been using my quarantine for. Um, so those will be two resources and I'll give you links for those. I have a mailing list that people can join to uh, stay up to date on when that's going to go live. Um, and then uh, in terms of books, the, the two books I've mentioned, or the one book that I mentioned really early on, um, one by Peter Kageyama, uh, if you're just interested love where you in live. general, yeah, Love Where You Live. Um, I think that that's a great book. It's really easy to read, really accessible, um, just sort of gets you thinking creatively about how art can inspire play and movement in your city. Um, it's not a super in-depth analysis, but I think it, it, it um, introduces a lot of really important concepts to anyone who's interested in possibly putting their toe in, <laughs> uh, putting their toe into, sorry, putting their toe into the world of public art. Um, I also think that if you're interested in public art, sculptural installation, it's really hard to get in without a portfolio or past experience, obviously. Um, especially when you do it with cities. 
Um, something I've recommended a couple people in the States is to start participating in your local Burning Man community because they have large events where they welcome artists, even with no experience, to come in and build um, and create um, for large groups of people to play, participate, interact, whatever it is. Um, it's been a great space of experimentation for me. So I can go and build and try things out and watch people interact with it and get feedback and documentation, photos, and a portfolio so that when time comes, I'm ready. I can go to a city and say like, look, I built 10 large scale sculptures at this event. And I have experience with budgeting, uh, managing a team, getting things built. So as an outlet tool for people interested in, in getting into that world, that is an amazing route. And they're all over Europe as well. Um, so it's not just American. Uh, and um, other resources. I guess I can give you a list of books that Gorilla Play blog. I'm actually going to go through my entire library over mm -hmm. the course of like 80 posts, uh, highlighting different books that people could be interested in. I also no have way. a list of some of my favorite books already on my personal website, which I will also give you a link to. Um, cool. That's probably a really good place for us to stop because I don't yeah, want to I can be going, so I people. Not. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're going to begin blogging regularly about the books you create, that's probably where we want to send people. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that finishes off our... Uh, art and play discussion. Thank you both so much for joining me. It was really interesting. It was interesting to sit here as someone who is really out of their depth in this area and to really learn things about space and the way I, the way I, I might have always perceived it, but not have the words. That's a really cool thing because so much of what you were talking about really spoke to me as a purple practitioner, um, which is something I've not really considered in a while. I think of myself as a businessman. I think of myself as a coach. I think of myself as a teacher. I think of myself as a leader. I forget that I'm also this like kid who likes to jump off things. So that was really fun and pleasant for me. Um, that is the uh, end of our blog. We're going to finish off now. Uh, my next discussion is with Chris Grant on Thursday. We're going to be talking about youth work. That's quite exciting. Um, oh, I've got some yeah. more ones lined up. I'll be talking to Sasha on Friday and Brandy next Wednesday. So I've got more coming. Oh, awesome. I'm very excited. Uh, thank you both for joining me. Uh, really enjoying my talks uh and of course um caitlin you're off to walk a mile on a bar now um my friend david banks is uh he was going to try today he was going to be walking a marathon on a rail <laughs> um I, I, I was going to be hosting him it was going to be here um we had it all set up and we were ready to go and of course the pandemic happened and then on top of that david got really badly injured his knee basically exploded um, and so 29 different parkour practitioners from across the world, and I mean the world, um, we've got people from every continent, I think, um, are going to complete a mile for him. And we're going to complete 29 miles on a rail. Um, it's really fun. Are you my... um, I mean, I'm not like officially. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Go do a mile on a rail. It's good fun. Solidarity. Uh, Solidarity. It, it took me about an hour. Um, it's good fun. Not bad. Uh, and I fully recommend it. Uh, enjoy guys thank you so much for joining me thank you for having me and i'll speak to thank you both you. Soon. thanks for doing this yeah